0: Welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in Libyan affairs and, more generally, politics, governance, and development in the Arab world. And he's a regular visitor to our Arab Digest podcast. Tariq, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Bill. Thank you again for having me on. It's always great to be here.
0: Now, look, since we last spoke back in January, the political landscape in Libya has changed. Some would say quite dramatically. Others, and I include you in this, Tedek, would say mm, maybe not so much. First of all, can you tell our listeners about how this new government came about, and what can you tell us about the new prime minister, Abdelhamid Debeba, and also? the people around him.
1: Sure. And, you know, if it's not too too cynical of me to, to to start off on this note, I would say that there certainly has been change. But, you know, the the deck chairs have been rearranged quite dramatically on the Titanic. But, you know, that doesn't change all too much. Um, that seems to be the overall thrust of things, unfortunately. But, you know, speaking of this new prime minister, Abdul Hamid Dabiba, it's, uh, you know, I think it's it's indicative of the of the whole process and the state of play right now. You know, there's a lot to be said that um, a man with this family name became Prime Minister of Libya um, through a process that was considered dubious. You know, to give some, some, some background for, for the listeners who aren't so familiar, you know, having a Debeba become Prime Minister of Libya is akin to having a, a Makhlouf um, becoming Prime Minister of Syria or, you know, a Capone becoming uh, President of the United States even. His, his family name is kind of synonymous with the corruption of the Gaddafi era, uh, mainly due to, to his cousin Ali Dabeba, who, who ran the kind of government social housing project. Um, and, you know, tri- tri- Tripoli prosecutors, right after the, the revolution, estimated the scale of, of Dabeba's corruption at some six or seven billion dollars, um, and that was a conservative estimate. Uh, the courts in Scotland are, are gearing up for their biggest ever fraud case uh, against him and his family um, for activities committed in Scotland. So, you know, this gives you an, an idea uh, of the man who is, who is coming in. And, you know, in the, the UN-led process that led to his appointment, there were, I think, some serious allegations that, um, you know, him and his cousin were, were offering significant amounts of money uh, to the various delegates of the process in order to vote for him. Um, now, it's worth saying that, you know, he's not the only one who was accused of doing that. But the whole thing kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Um, and, you know, so far things are progressing as one would expect from, a, you know, a man who is um, uh, who who has a background in the construction industry and who has, you know, strong allegations of corruption continuously swirling around him. You know, he's got these these grand dreams for big projects and big budgets and so on. Um, but in terms of what kind of a person he is, you know, he's, at least he is um, a much more personable individual than than Faiz al-Saraj was. I mean, Fayez al was at times statuesque. He created great frustration amongst Libyans and the international community for never actually doing anything. Um, whereas Dubeba seems to be a lot more active. He seems to be a lot better at engaging with, 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 with various groups of people. You know, he's much more happy talking in the Libyan dialect than he is in the kind of posh formal Arabic. Um, so I think that kind of, of paints a picture. And, you know, it's, it's telling that you've asked me about the whole system, but all I've done is talk about Dubeba for the most part. Because Dubeba is, is essentially trying to spin this into the Abdul Hamid Dubeba show. Um, and, you know, he was appointed alongside a three-man presidency council there was intended to be some kind of balance between institutions, right? The parliament, um, this presidency council as a de facto head of state, uh, and then uh, the prime minister to, to kind of run things on the ground. But we haven't really heard much um, from the new president, uh, Mohammed Manafi. And I mean, even his, his own foreign minister is kind of left behind when he does um, his most important trips to places like the UAE. So overall, you know, we've we've jumped out of the firing pan and, and into the fire. We have a, a prime minister who is centralizing power and running the show. Um, and a lot of the old faces, um, Haftar and, and the Speaker of the Parliament, um, Aguila Saleh, are, are still in the background causing trouble, doing exactly what they were to the last government, um, which is trying to to marginalize them and, and set up a, a competing state alongside them.
0: Well, yeah, I, I can appreciate your skepticism. And I'm just... Uh rolling around in my head that comparison uh, with al Capone and an interesting one uh, for sure and and rather depressing really uh, if indeed it is the case that uh, a new corrupt strongman arrives on the scene in Libya at a point when you know there hasn't been fighting for several months really and and the ordinary people in Libya must just be thinking thank God the fighting is over and dare we hope for something better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I I don't think it should be understated that, you know, this time last year, Tripoli was still under attack. It was being shelled on a daily basis. Um, There were mass killings going on in in the town of Tarhuna nearby, which was kind of uncovered afterwards. And so today is a very different landscape. Um, And I think that's you know, one of the reasons why there wasn't the, the pushback against the Baber that one would ordinarily expect. I mean, it's a, it's a new prime minister, because God knows everybody was fed up with the last lot. Um, and, you know, he's coming through a UN process. There may have been some questions over it, but the process ran through to its, its conclusion. Um, and, you know, there are broad-based promises that this is only going to be a temporary government. Um, its its mandate is only to last until the 24th of December 2021, uh, which is Libyan Independence Day, when there will be elections for a new president and, and parliament, or this this hasn't been agreed yet, it's one of the sticking points, but there will be new elections, um, which will hopefully usher in a, a new order and a new, more permanent authorities, um, because it's worth rem- remembering that Libya is still in in the transitional period that it began in 2012 and that was only supposed to last a year or so. So there is hope um, for the future. I mean, you know, there's always this kind of of air of foreboding that hangs around things. Um, And I think that the longer, the substantive things about Libya don't change. So, you know, whilst there is still a a military split in the country, whilst um, Haftar is still being very um, aggressive and debilitating to the overall process. And I mean, as a quick example of that, uh, he blocked the Prime Minister um, debeba from, from visiting Benghazi, which is the, the, the second city of the country. Um, whilst, you know, there are still Russian mercenaries um, running around the country uh, and, Su- and Sudanese mercenaries and Chadian mercenaries and so on, you know, there's still an air of foreboding that, you know, how are we going to do elections? Because, you know, the security services aren't, aren't, aren't unified, um, foreign hands are already turning things a lot and the country is just not ready for it. So it's it's a tentative hope, um, but something still might come of it.
0: Yes. Now, you've mentioned Khalifa Haftar, the strong man, the warlord, backed by Egypt, France, Russia, and, and, and most uh, particularly and importantly, the UAE. Are they still there backing him? Is he still, you suggested, he's still a power player in this new uh, regime, in this in this new system? Yeah, I mean...
1: Well, I suppose in, in 20, 30 years' time, when, when one looks back at this period and, and, and tries to do a history of it, the most baffling thing will be how you know Khalifa Haftar, this, this massive belligerent and, and obstacle to, to stability and to progress um, for Libya's re- revolution, was comprehensively defeated. Um, his army scattered. His star had considerably crashed even to the extent you know that there was panic chatter going on in in the halls of power in in cairo and abu dhabi as to what they can do next and how they can transition on Um, and then you know he was protected Uh, he was given the space to to recover to lick his wounds to rejuvenate and to come back only to now present us all with the exact same problem that he has always presented us with um, which is how can you create a unified civilian authorities how can you create a unified system um, with this massive guy who is being supported heavily by influential states like Egypt the UAE France um, and now Greece as well to to come in and, and do things his own way and, and 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 to be a strong man and that same support exists. Um, you know in the Egyptian case it's become a bit more n- nuanced uh, the Egyptians are, are trying to hedge their bets they're investing a lot more in in Aguila Salah who's the the speaker of the parliament um, as a uh, as a civilian uh, leader for Eastern Libya that um, can represent them better. Uh, but the Emiratis and the Russians are, are still sending in supplies to Haftar. The French are still covering from him um, on a on a diplomatic level. And I think most concerning of all is that, you know, we, we are repeating um, this, these dynamics that led to the bifurcation of the country um, back in 2015. The only difference now is that instead of having two governments, we just have one huge government where these breakaway factions uh, of Aguila and and Haftar have their own delegates. Um, You know, they have managed to co-opt the the head of the national oil company. Um, They have people within various ministries. Um, They have their own parallel relations um, with Egypt, with Greece. Uh, and with others. And so it seems very worryingly that we, although this was supposed to be a unity government and the primary, you know, it, it's in the name, uh, Government of National Unity, we are leading to even deeper divisions, um, because all the pipes are being opened up to, to Haftar, to Aguila, to other spoilers, um, to be able to to set up their own operation in eastern Libya once more. So kind of back to where we started.
0: Mm-hmm. And Haftar still sees himself as the leader, doesn't he? The strong man who will take over Libya.
1: Yeah, and I mean he's perhaps because the Egyptians are starting to move away. He's he's emulating um, the Egyptian president Abdel Fattah sisi more and more. So if you look at him over the the past couple of months, um, it's rare that he still appears in his military uniform. Um, nowadays he's in suits or he's in traditional Libyan garb, and it seems very clear that he is preparing. To, to run for elections um, in December, and he's going to try to run um, for, for president. But at the same time, you know, it's very important to him that he, he retains this Libyan-Arab armed forces as the kind of, of center point of his power, and it becomes the, the heart of Libya's unified security services. So the game he is essentially trying to pull is to, to become a wolf in civilian clothing, and then to, to delegate uh, responsibility of leading these armed forces to his sons, Saddam and and Khalid Haftar, who are who who he hopes are less controversial than he is and so might not retain the same pushback, but who just aren't military people. You know, it's even more of a stretch to consider that Saddam, you know, somebody who who has no military experience before Daddy gave him a a high rank back in 2016. Um, and still, you know, has, hasn't has got much more experience than, than kind of shaking people down and robbing banks, which is even documented in the UN panel of experts report, um, and watching parades is now supposed to be the head of Libya's armed forces. So we can see the ambition, it's still there, but it still doesn't make much sense on a logical perspective.
0: Now, look, I want to go back again to to our last podcast, uh, where you spoke of the importance of and the reasons why Europe should engage just remind us again of your thinking, uh, because I don't have the sense that Europe is engaging. Rather, Europe assumes a situation has been resolved, not entirely, not entirely satisfactorily, but but you know resolved nonetheless. So job done. Let let's move on.
1: In a sense, I mean, I think this would be the the kind of baseline European position. Um, but again, you know, we're seeing a kind of a flick back or um, a relapse into the kind of behaviors that we saw from Europeans around 2015 and 16 with the um, emergence of the government of national accord. And I, I know I keep harking back to this example, but but the parallels are becoming very disconcerting. Um, I mean, even the names of the two governments are very similar. But, you know, in this case, you had this kind of baseline position, which is which is, as you say, Bill, um, you know, the, an idea that the job is done, that we have done something re- remarkable. We've pulled Libya back from the brink of civil war and created a unity government. And, you know, we still have a path forward um, to elections and so on. So let's not get too, too worked up about the bad points. These are hitches. They can be overcome. Um And let's get down to business. And when I say let, let's get down to business, I think this... um this speaks more to the, the more familiar faces in Libya, um, such as the Italians who are already, you know, ramping up the amount of contracts that they're signing with the new authorities, trying to figure out a way to work with the Turks across the oil industry, um, but also the French who are, you know, continuing with the Emiratis and with the Egyptians in this game of kind of subversion to, you know, say that, okay, the military route didn't work. So now how can we tweak the infrastructure and the politics of the country? to undermine these current civilian authorities, to undermine the prospects of a fair transition, um, and to instead revert to a, a military strongman who who we can support. But, you know, having said all that, I think it's important to to give perhaps a more positive outlook, or just to give the other side, essentially, because it's you know, Libya's transition so far is probably the pluckiest kind of transition I've seen yet um, in Libya and in other places. We keep expecting this whole thing to implode at, 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 at any minute. Um, and, you know, time of death has been called on it at least two or three times so far already, but it, it still seems to keep moving forward. Um, you know, there are plans in the works to send the UN monitoring mission to CERT. Uh, which can hopefully help to drive the military sit- situation further a bit. There is considerable pressure behind the scenes for at least foreign mercenaries to leave. Um, and there is a kind of uniform pressure, I mean, even amongst the troublemakers, because um, I think there is such gravity behind this position that, that they cannot, cannot afford to overtly go against it, that elections will be held in December. So the key is, you know, can we get this monitoring mission to create real unity um, and to not get sucked into the Haftar phenomenon? And can we ensure that, you know, elections happen that aren't just, you know, nominal elections that are going to be subverted by by the Russians or by Haftar? And, you know, somebody wins by 99.9% of the vote, but are actually kind of free, fair and credible and can lead to something new. So, you know, the transition continues. And as long as it continues, all is not lost.
0: And, and And europe has a stake in seeing that transition because as you as you said last time quite rightly there is that issue of security the the, the migrant issue the fact that libya is 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 a gateway to the to the sahal and and, and there's lots of instability there um, so the situation it it is in in europe's interest to engage and invest in stabilizing libya
1: absolutely and you know i would Go a step further and to say that for all the countries involved, Libya is most important to the Europeans because Libya, like it or not, is the heart of the Mediterranean. Um, and, you know, when the heart is as sick as it is now, it kind of pumps bad blood everywhere else. Um, we see this in the Sahel. We see worrying signs, you know, going across to, to Tunisia um, and to Algeria. You know, the the fact that it's drawn in Turkey and Egypt as adversaries. Threatens stability there in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, and we see hints at, at at the flip side of this, right? So as peace has come to Libya, the the relationship between Egypt and Turkey improves. Um, avenues open up for for dealing with the Eastern Mediterranean. So Libya is is really, I think, a, a key area of of national interest, if not national security, uh, for the Europeans considering also that, you know, we now have Russia, the old enemy, who are setting up shop a couple of hundred kilometers across the water from where NATO bases are in, in Sicily. So, you know, it's still as important as ever, which I think makes it more, more frustrating and more disconcerting that, that Europeans seem to be hoping that the, this, the, this, the same old tricks result in, in something new happening.
0: Yeah, and, and, and of course, the, the, the issue of removing the foreign fighters, getting the mercenaries out, because the Turks are using mercenaries as well, aren't they? From Syria, uh, the Russians, the, the Wagner group, there, there are lots of foreign forces in there. I mean, how realistic is it, given that these various uh, players want to keep their advantages in place and are using their soldiers to do so, that, that there will be a withdrawal of, of foreign forces, including the mercenaries?
1: I mean, it's certainly an, an uphill battle, but I don't think it's an impossibility. It just it relies on on once again, a uniform will to make something happen. And whilst everybody is still trying to to play games and to ensure that you know their team comes out on top, then there's too much mistrust in the air to for, for anything meaningful to take place. And I mean to to kind of expand on this, you know the the Turks have have these thousands of of Syrian mercenaries who are there. Um, And you can make a case that, you know, for the Turks, it's significantly easier to withdraw the mercenaries than it is for, for the Russians, because they are the entirety of the Russian presence there. Uh, And similarly, you know, if the Emiratis um, withdraw these Sudanese mercenaries who they seem to be paying for, um, then they lose their entire stake in Libya as well. But you cannot make a case to convince the Turks to start um, withdrawing these troops, unless you can, you know, in exchange, you know, offer them support, for example, to say that we will ensure that that Tripoli remains secure. Um, and that you can show that this this isn't just the Turks being picked on, that, you know, similar pressure is being applied to the Russians, and that there are concrete steps in place, that everybody's mercenaries are going. So it really need, needs to be an, an all or nothing scenario. But whilst we have, you know, and again, I hate to pick on them, but, you know, key um, permanent members of the Security Council, like the French, trying to target um, the Turks and make it all about the Turks, uh, whilst on the other side, you know, the U.S. is making it all about the Russians. Um, and there's no kind of strategy in play. There's no guiding principle. It's just kind of a zeroing in on, on different sets of, of nation state interests. Then I think the whole game will continue because there's there's just no common position and there's just no not enough trust Um between all, all the players that, that are there.
0: Mm. And 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 this, you know, it's a transitional government. De Beba has said there will be elections uh, in, in December. But but these various outside players, I mean, how committed are they to that process? Would they not, some of them at least say, you know what, De Beba, you can hang around a little bit. We'll postpone the elections down the road because things are a little iffy right now. And we've seen that elsewhere uh, in the Middle East, where elections get kicked down the road for various reasons. What do you think? Is that is that a danger?
1: Well, this is certainly what seems to be Dubeba's hope. So, you know, as he's kind of uh, touring the main capitals of, of, of the countries involved in Libya, the message seems to be that, you know, look, I'm a guy who you can work with, um, whether he's in Moscow, whether he's in Abu Dhabi, whether he's in Ankara, he's saying, you know, I will secure your interests and I will give you loads um, of contracts to get involved in the energy industry and, and repairing infrastructure and, and building new developments. Um, so, you know, perhaps if the elections don't happen, it's not the worst thing in the world. And I think that, you know, he has some some base of support therein, um, especially as, you know, those in the East, for example, like like the Egyptians see this as an opportunity to both take Um, Libya's money and Tabeba's offer um, but at the same time regrow and and, and cultivate their own kind of antagonist faction in the east who are also doing all they can to to stall for elections and I think that's a slightly separate issue Um, but then you have the other group who I think do want elections to happen but only for the reason that they believe that that they can twist these elections into their favor so the russians for example and to go back to them their primary presence um in the in the country is through this mercenary group called the wagner group um the wagner group you know they advertise quite openly that one of the services they provide are electioneering services um, and they had two operatives that were arrested in in tripoli um, i think this was back in 2017 or 18 and you know from what the interior ministry have said about them uh, their and their activities it's very clear that, that they are laying the groundwork for electioneering, for trying to figure out strategies to turn the election in favor of, of delegates related to the ex-regime, um, such as the son um, of the former leader, um, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi. Uh, and I think, you know, looking at, at Russian disinformation channels and Russian activities, I think we're going to start to see this um, come back the closer we get to elections, this kind of disinformation push behind bringing the ex-regime back and then tweaking the scenario on the ground. You know, not as crude as stuffing ballot boxes, but perhaps stuffing the civil registry Um, and, you know, cases like this. Similarly, in eastern Libya, you know, Haftar, we've gone over his backers. He's he's running for president. Um, And, you know, I I defy anybody to tell me with a straight face that somebody else in eastern Libya can put on a suit and tie and say, you know what, I'm going to challenge Haftar for the presidency. It's just not going to happen. You know, he'll end up six feet under within a week. Um, so there is some support for elections from the intervening states, but for all the wrong uh, reasons.
0: Well, look, I, I, yeah, that's very interesting. And, and of course, the Russians have a, a, a now a pretty lengthy track record of interfering in elections uh, in several uh, countries uh, around the globe. Um, but I, I want to ask you about Biden and, and, and the, his administration, is it showing much interest in Libya? Uh, my guess is that with the pivot to, to Asia, Libya is pretty far down the pecking order. Perhaps that's, uh, that's uh, the wrong impression, and I'm, I'm doing them down a bit on that.
1: I mean, the, 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 the line you gave is what everybody expected from the U- United States, right? Like, they've never been the most engaged in Libya. Even at the height under President Obama, they wanted to lead from behind. But, you know, saying that, there's been a kind of a pleasant surprise. And, you know, I, I talked before about, you know, how that how this is the, the, the pluckiest process I've seen that kind of always pulls through. And a lot of that is thanks to the United States, to be honest, because behind the scenes, they're the ones that are, are pushing it forward relentlessly. They are the ones that are kind of bullying everybody to not be a spoiler quite yet Um, And I think this is something that that started just before um, the Biden administration came into power. But it's something that we're seeing being followed through on by the Biden administration. You know, we've seen messaging being sent from from the highest level, from the secretary of state um, about this kind of call to get rid of uh, Russian mercenaries. Uh, We've seen it present in the kind of readouts um, that that Blinken has had. With other powers in the region, you know, especially in his in in his recent spree of calls to North African leaders, Um, so we're seeing a lot of activity. uh, And I'm, you know, I don't think I'd be wrong in saying that the U.S. is the main driving force. But at the same time, you know, what you say um, is true. They are not really vested in Libya or wanting to get bogged down in Libya or in the Middle East more more generally. Um, And I think this should be something which is you know, spurs some thought or some reflection amongst the Europeans, um, that the Americans see themselves as being there and doing a job because the Europeans aren't capable or just aren't doing it themselves. Um, And so the primary fixation of the the United States is to get rid of Russian mercenaries in Libya because they see it as a strategic threat to the NATO installations that that are there um, and to the kind of soft underbelly of Europe. But anything beyond that, they're not really interested in. So, you know, we can even see from from the U.S. ambassador's trip to Moscow recently, an interview that he gave, that, you know, he's happy for the Russians to still be involved. And he's trying to sell them this kind of bait and switch of, you know, you get rid of your mercenaries and we won't say anything about your businesses being involved or about strong political ties and and so on and so forth. Um, And so I think that also sets us up to an awkward situation. um, Because whilst American support is always welcome... When the Americans are in the room, they drive the process, you know, they are the superpower. Um, So right now, you know, we are going 100 miles per hour headlong towards elections because the Americans see this as the best way of getting rid of mercenaries, ultimately. But they're doing it with the blinkers on. Um, So, you know, it's great and we're getting places and we're getting there quickly. But eventually, you know, we're going to go flying off the end of the track um, because, no one is thinking about the wider issues at play no one is thinking about you know the the tenets of libyan stability um of you know what kind of a power sharing deal needs to be there how to marginalize and get rid of the militant spoilers such as Haftar, um, how to kind of get rid of of the the venal politicians who are kind of bleeding the country dry and who have stepped up this corruption into overdrive you know, there are some big issues at play, and they're all being ignored um, in pursuit of this kind of goal of elections and getting rid of the Russian mercenaries. Um, so, you know, we do see more interest than we expected from from the Americans, but it's a double-edged sword so far.
0: Yes, and um, as you have argued uh, in, in articles and, and, and here on the podcast, there is a role that Europe could play but they need to pick up the ball and run with it. Look, let, let me finally just ask you about the extraordinary events in, in Chad with the death of the president killed apparently on the front lines, because there is a Libya angle, isn't there to, to, to this story?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, I've, I've been around the block a few times, but this is still probably the craziest story I've heard. Um And I think it, It should be one of those moments that causes um, especially those in Paris to kind of sit up and and take note about um, about the failures of of policy to date. You know, it's if you saw it in the film, you wouldn't really believe it. So you have, you know, President Idris long longtime kind of strongman or warlord in in Chad um, and the kind of cornerstone of France's Sahel policy. Um, You know, Chadian armed forces help France out throughout the region Operation Barkhan is, is, is centered there um, and so on. But, you know, there have been a spree of, of rebel groups um, who, who have been after President Deby for a long time. And, you know, these groups uh, have made a home for themselves um, in Libya since, since, since the revolution happened. And one of these groups, um, which has the acronym FACT, kind of span off from the others, it's been working with, with Haftar, at least for the last few years. Um, they've been set up um, next to Joffre military base, which is currently run by, by the Russian mercenaries. And then, you know, as as the battles in Libya have calmed down, as there is no more fighting to do, and, you know, they've kind of picked up all the treasure and weapons and experience that they wanted, they decided to take a crack at at, at Deibi, um and they invaded Chad. And, you know, although fact were seemed to be comprehensively defeated by the Chadian armed forces, in that altercation, um, the president was killed. So, you know, because France backed one strongman in Libya, a spin-off of that caused their other strongman project in Chad to collapse, leaving their, their policy in, in both places um, completely ablaze. Um, because, you know, in Libya right now, they have two of their biggest enemies, Russia and Turkey, who are now far more dominant than they are. Uh, And in Chad, you know, they they, they are trying to back a military transitional council behind Deby's son. But, you know, there is the smell of of civil war in the air. Um, Chad is a heavily factional society. Deby the Younger has not got the pull of his father. Um, There are still a lot of rebel groups hanging around, trying to collect enough men to launch another attack. Um, And then also, you know, the likes of of the Russians and the Turks and others are, are sniffing around, trying to see if they can get in and dilute French influence. Um, in a region that they traditionally dominate, or that they have dominated for the last hundred plus years. So all in all, you know, this is a bizarre story. And it should be one to to show how, you know, this this strongman policy is just not fit for, for today's world. You know, it's not the 1800s anymore. Um, you can't just have a, a local military governor who runs things in this interconnected world of ours. Um, you know, the, the brittleness of a state um, that's run by a strongman, you know, the hollowed out economic institutions, the, all the factions and divisions created, um, and the willingness of all these, these other powers to patronize these, these other factions and give them weapons um, means that we just create more and more instability every time we pursue one of these policies. So hopefully, you know, this can be a, a warning light that, that pushes them down a different path. But, but judging from the response so far, it, it, it seems
0: unlikely. Yes, as you say, it's a it's a bizarre and, and fascinating story, and and uh, Monsieur Macron quite quite himself fascinated with uh, the figure of Napoleon. So whether lessons are to be learned or not, that that's a good one. But look, uh, as ever, Tarek, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Bill. It's it, it it's always a pleasure to chat to you.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.